You're listening to Labor Wave Radio. On this episode of Labor Wave, we speak with two of the angry workers, authors of the recent title from PM Press, Class Power on Zero Hours. Before getting into the episode, we want to give a shout out to our latest patron, Bart Bulger, who became a strike captain for Labor Wave recently. Thanks so much for your support, Bart. And for our listeners who wish to help support this show, you can do so by becoming a patron at patreon.com backslash laborwave. There's different tiers and each of them include various gifts and perks for being a patron. And this show is fully independent and supported through that platform. Other ways you can show your support for Labor Wave if you can't become a patron is by liking our content on our various social media and on SoundCloud. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And giving us reviews and sharing our content. Our guests are the Angry Workers, a small political collective who has spent the past six years organizing in London's industrial backyard, mainly in food manufacturing and logistics sectors. Their book, Class Power on Zero Hours, is about their experiences and trying to find new ways of building class power in tough times. We talk about the contents of the book and the lessons they've learned, as well as the methods they tried to apply to build collective worker power, and they invite listeners and readers to engage with them and have intellectual exchange of ideas and debate. We have a number of upcoming episodes that you'll be hearing in the coming months, They include conversations about Amazon capitalism with the editors of the recent Pluto Press title, The Cost of Free Shipping. We also talk to contributors to organizing work about the future of the IWW. And we're going to wrap up our book series discussing the contents of No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age by Jane McLevy. All this and more coming up on LaborWave. And one final shout out we need to give is to In The Red Records. They are giving us permission to use the music of their artist on our show. And you can find out more about In The Red and the artists you hear on this episode in our show notes. All right. We're really excited today. LaborWave has with us the Angry Workers. And hopefully one day we will have, what, 7 billion Angry Workers. Maybe we have only a fraction of that now. But who are the angry workers I'm speaking with today? If you all wouldn't mind just introducing yourselves quickly for our listeners. Um, I'm Kieran. Hey, and I'm Marco. And you all have recently had a book published by PM Press, Class Power on Zero Hour. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that. But I was actually interested in the title of the book right off the bat. So could you explain where this title came from, Class Power on Zero Hour? Well, we kind of were thinking about various titles and this kind of summed up the general feeling of, yeah, how to kind of build a class power in a situation where you have a workforce that is more precarious on zero hours contracts. The workforce is a very divided place today and ways of kind of getting workers together and and organizing is difficult. <laughs> I mean, otherwise we would see it happening everywhere and it's not. So this was kind of our primary question of how do we build class power in times that are difficult? Does everyone know what a zero-hour contract is? I mean, I think it's not that kind of common probably in the US or maybe it has got a different name, but it basically means that uh, you often work for agency 
and uh, they don't have to guarantee you any hours. Um, so they can call you the day before or sometimes even like two, three hours before your shift starts and tell you to come to work or not to come to work. And often it's attached to your behavior at work or your productivity. So, for example, in a, one of the warehouses where we worked, um, if you are in the lower third of um, the productivity kind of scale and that's measured every day, you are less likely to get shifts. So it's used as well as a as a blackmail. But I think also it kind of signifies this kind of changing um, kind of recomposition of the workforce, you could say. So over the last kind of 20 years, you've had a modernization of production techniques. The way that labor is managed has changed. Methods of transporting goods to market has changed. How we sell goods, how we buy goods, all of these things are changing. And that's obviously reflected in the kind of modern workforce. And we thought this kind of zero hours label that kind of encapsulated this new, yeah, new kind of state of work. Especially if we remember the, I mean, in the UK, let's say up to the late 70s, I mean, the unions actually had, you know, a very entrenched power based on permanent uh, contracts, uh, quite sectorial workforce like the printers, dockers, miners, all that. So uh, we had a very high degree of unionization and a very political attack. So like even though every individual workforce, the miners, the dockers, printers felt that we really run the show here. The bosses can't do anything without us. Uh, they have been you know, defeated badly. So it is also maybe a reflection that with zero hours, all we can rely on is basically each other. Um, we can't rely on professional status. We can't rely on the law that much. It's really basically us against them, and we have to use every you know means that we have collectively to build power. So, considering the reconfiguration of capitalism, which is also a reconfiguration of class, you all formed, from my general understanding, the angry workers and approached the working class with a particular method. So, like, who are the angry workers? What what is that? Are you all like an organization, or how would you describe yourselves? And then, what was your strategy to try to build class power? We would say we are like a political collective. We try to build, or we think that the working class has to create its own political independent organization, a revolutionary organization. But um, we think you you don't do that by declaration or by developing the better program. We feel that primary task of communists or revolutionaries today is to understand what the reason is for you know a certain weakness you know or the the uh, collective difficulties to develop power so for us that means that we can't step back and uh, leave the organizing to let's say the unions or whatever organizations are normally responsible for that we think yeah we have to get involved so we felt we want to go to a place in outskirts of London that has a certain significance, let's say economically. It's like the biggest logistics area in London. About 60% of the food that is consumed in London um, is either packaged there or processed. It's very closely attached to the airport. And um, we felt that it's an area that is really not reflected in left politics in London. I mean, 
you can imagine what kind of left is dominating London. It was the Corbyn left and student dash kind of academic left plus some older type of organizations, you know, of the Trotskyist left. So um, we felt that, you know, this vast kind of potential power of mainly migrant workers is not really reflected in left politics. So we decided to move out there and um, with fairly modest goals. So we said, first of all, we tried to understand how does this work? I mean, how do they bring migrant workers who hardly speak English from very vast backgrounds, South Asian, Eastern European, African, uh, together to basically uh, feed this town, feed the city? And um, how can people who are individually weak because of their migration status or yeah, language skills, how can they develop a collective power under these conditions? So that was, let's say, the starting point. Yeah, and this kind of area of um, West London is kind of typical of this low-waged mass work sector. So I think we thought, okay, this is kind of a good template for more kind of general work and life in England at the moment. And there's a lot that people can relate to in terms of if something did happen there, some kind of strike wave, some kind of, you know, workers' organisation that that had the potential to spread because there was a lot that other workers would be able to, yeah, relate to. The idea was to basically get jobs in the bigger workplaces because that's where you have more kind of potential to, to do something. And we would go in there and spend maybe the first, you know, few months just kind of checking things out, talking to people, uh, figuring out how stuff worked, what the hierarchies were composition of workforce like who who were our co-workers where did they come from what strategies do management use to like divide workers and all of this stuff kind of becomes the basis for thinking about how to organize you know so we didn't go in thinking oh yeah you know we have to join a union or we have to do this or do that because every workplace is different you know and this kind of template model of organizing where you just do this, you just find the organic leader and then you just do step one, step two, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's just, I just find it a bit odd. You know, like obviously people want a kind of magic solution to kind of solve the problems of the fact that workers are not getting together. And that if you just do A, B and C, then somehow it will work. And if you don't win or you don't succeed, then somehow you weren't following these rules enough and I just think you know we can't afford to be that naive you know like these are big workplaces things are complicated um, management strategies are very sophisticated I think anyone that's been on a shop floor and tried to kind of do this kind of thing realizes that it's not just a question of like finding the organic leader I mean in, yeah. in my workplace for example all of the you know so-called leaders had already been bought off you know by management you're looking for the leader, and so is the management. And they all, they have the resources to get there first. And then you think, okay, maybe there's like a substrata under that. But this is why we go into quite a lot of detail in the book about the specific workplaces and how the structures are working because it kind of shines a light on the fact that, you know, things are more complicated and we one-size-fits-all kind of approach is not is not going to work. That is one, let's say, criticism of like the more kind of 
what do you say, traditional organizing methods, but it's also a political question. I mean, for us, the main, um, let's say, goal is that workers learn that they can analyze all the means that they have to, to fight back collectively. And part of that is, or the, the prime, you know, primary focus is to, to analyze the work organization, something that they're already doing to see whether you know, bosses are dependent on them, to see how their workplace is connected to the wider industries. And then also, obviously, to analyze the, the legal situation, what kind of you know, scope does the labor law actually give you? How is an union organized? Uh, what's the hierarchy inside the union? So the, the goal is really that, you know, in each situation, workers analyze their their condition. And that's something that, you know, is, is lost. I mean, you can maybe go in and manage workers and, you know, motivate them campaigning and all that. But like to say, like, actually, it's it's always us who have to learn to analyze. That's especially in a, in a migrant workforce with language problems. So that's that's quite a challenge. I think that we have a couple of opportunities to segue here. Um, the bigger political questions I definitely think are be interesting, but I kind of wanted to hear more about the details because I know in the book in particular, you all pay a lot of attention to specific workplaces in describing them and detailing them and talking about like the hierarchies and the strategies that the bosses have within them. So can you tell our listeners at least you know some of the highlights from that, like some of the workplaces that you did attach yourselves to, what they were like, how they were configured? Um, as Marco said, a lot of the workplaces around West London deal with food. So 60% of the food that's consumed in central London goes through this area. And so a lot of the warehouses and factories kind of are processing, manufacturing, packaging food and food products. So it wasn't a coincidence that, yeah, we mainly ended up getting jobs in kind of food related industries. So one of us was a retail kind of supermarket delivery driver. I was a forklift driver in a food um, manufacturer. Um, we also worked in a supermarket chill warehouse, picking goods that were then shipped to um, supermarket. Um, one of us worked in an airline catering company. So, yeah, we kind of got a good overview of what it's like to work in different parts of the food chain you could say and we dedicate three chapters in the book to our kind of workers inquiry in three of those workplaces and the place I guess where we got the furthest was in my food factory which was uh, similar to lots of workplaces around there so very heavily migrant workforce it was also really divided primarily through kind of temp and permanent workers So you had workers that had worked there for a very long time, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. And then you had those that had were just working there was on agency, zero hours contracts. And those that were less had been there for less than two years. So there was a lot of um, divisions also in terms of what contract you were on. So if you had been there for 10 years, you had a different contract from if you'd have worked there for just for two years. Anyone that had worked there under two years could be sacked without a reason. So that was kind of one element of, you know, do we wait for two years in order to feel a bit safer or not? Do we like take the risk to do something? The other division, I guess, was between the language groups. There was a majority kind of Gujarati workforce and then smaller 
kind of minorities of Tamil and Eastern European workers. And management used that quite effectively, I would say, to kind of maintain this feeling of competition between the different groups. And there was always kind of accusations of favoritism of different managers um, to their language group. And the company would kind of use the middle management layers, use people of, you know, that migrant workforce. So because people have a, you know, poor English, they would be more likely to have a closer relationship to their manager who spoke the same language than their co-worker who maybe doesn't, you know. So this worked quite well to keep kind of workers in alliance with managers rather than their co-workers. Yeah, there was also a kind of skill grading structure, which was introduced actually while I was still working there and the union supported, which was, yeah, having four skill grades, the lowest, which is mainly the women who were working on the assembly line, the semi-skill grade, which is mainly men who just operated a very kind of simple machine, which could be just like pressing a button, but they were seen as semi-skilled and then supervisory, uh, skilled and supervisory. Um, And they all got kind of a slightly different wage. So there was also this element of competition and kind of carrot dangling of, can you get into a semi-skilled or a a skilled position? And yeah, that obviously played out in kind of future pay campaigns where then the management were able to kind of buy off one section of the workforce over another. And yeah, the managers generally had a lot of kind of personal control like over their teams. So they would decide if you were allowed to go on holiday or not, if you uh, could go to the toilet or not. So, yeah, it was very important to kind of maintain this direct managerial relationship, which meant that people were reluctant to kind of band together and and assert themselves against like shitty behaviour from from those managers. That was kind of all of the things maybe from the management side, but also as well as that, in terms of the work, the pace of work was like really intense. Um, The machinery kept breaking down. It was just really difficult to work there. I mean, it just felt like you didn't really have the tools to be able to do the job, even though this was a massive company that like, you know, millions and millions of pounds in profit. The general kind of atmosphere was quite toxic. And because of this pressure that managers were under and pressure then that was put onto workers everyone was kind of shouting all the time everyone was stressed and all of these things just made it a pretty difficult workforce yeah maybe to add i mean it was mainly migrant workers who had no eu status that meant that in order to bring their spouses over from for example india you have to earn £18,600 a year. You only achieve that at the minimum wage uh, that these women got. If you work a lot of overtime, that makes you dependent on the boss or the foreman, the supervisor, to give you the overtime. So there is that element. Then they had a union 15 years, roughly. Um, they were still the women only earning just roughly over the uh, minimum wage. All the uh, union representatives were basically from the so-called community that bit of a higher status in the community, sometimes, you know, back in the village in Gujarat, but also sometimes in religious sense or as landlords, uh, supervisory position in the factory. So they, they were mainly elected into the union body. So and the union over the 15 years, basically, they 
agreed to you know very minimal wage increases uh, and had a fairly good relation with with management so we came into that situation where yeah the union itself was not like something that workers could use to put pressure on the bosses uh, we also have to say it's four different factories that are close you know in close proximity with 4000 workers so we had like two three maximum four comrades working in different areas but to just get the communication going between the four factories and the warehouse actually we we thought okay we need a little uh, factory newsletter so we started things outside of the union for the first one or two years distributed like you know a, a newsletter with you know basic kind of information about what's happening in the other factory or about the the pay campaign the current one of the union and by working there and by having the news that we we focused on what what is our power in a situation of food production where hygiene is very important you've got a lot of rules that are always infringed and uh, if we stick to the rules you know work to rule that's already something that we could use um so little things in the in the day to day where workers even a small group of workers for example the cleaners uh, could put pressure on the boss that had you know, limited success. I mean, sometimes we managed to get like temp workers at the time. Um, most of us were working at temps, temp workers together, or even, you know, just the small groups around us. But it was very difficult giving the, you know, large amount of 4,000 workers to come to, you know, bigger meetings that would be necessary to go forward. So after about a year or two, we decided, although we are normally critical of, you know, the, the traditional unions, with a change inside the union, uh, we decided that we would go to participate in the election for becoming a union representative. Yeah, I'd like to hear about the decision to get involved in the union and like focus also on the strategies, like the tactics, as, since you all have detailed a lot of the challenges and obstacles to creating worker solidarity in all these different industries. So how successful was the newspaper? And the efforts to become like a, a union steward. What other strategies and tactics did you apply, and what's kind of focus on that? Yeah. So initially, um, even before we did the factory newsletter, actually we would just occasionally put in a leaflet about some reacting to some change that the management had had announced. So, for example, if they were cutting the overtime bonus or something, we would be able to react quite quickly to that and like get a bunch of people together to like distribute a leaflet, basically just as a way for workers to have something that they could talk over, like during, you know, their canteen break, a kind of point for discussion. But it was always like, you know, you need to kind of get together and like discuss what's going on and maybe try and do something. And if you're interested, contact us. And I think we initially did that because, you know, there could already be existing groups in such a big workforce that are pissed off with the union and want to do something themselves. So it was a kind of way, an opportunity for them to like come forward as a group and say, okay, we want to do something. But we got maybe some individual people calling us, contacting us, but no one really came as a group. So then we just kind of tried to do stuff like with our workmates. So whilst I was a forklift driver, you know, it was just kind of trying to introduce a culture really where we like talk to each other more and started to work as a team a lot more and not make so many individual decisions. And this was a, you know, always felt a bit one step forward and two steps back. 
But over, let's say, four years, it did get to the point where we could say, okay, we're not going to work until you put salt on the road because it's too icy. And we stopped work until they did that. Otherwise, they would have just let us carry on all day. But, you know, it was, it was kind of macho men, all kind of a bit, you know, doing their individual thing. So it was difficult, but I think we, we managed to do some, like, good collective actions together, like walk, walks on the boss and, like, all this kind of stuff. But the question was, okay, how do we kind of bring that together with other groups of workers doing similar things? And this was difficult because as a forklift driver, you only like hang out with forklift drivers, you know? So how do I get in touch with like other groups of workers who could be doing similar things? And so the union did kind of give space for me to be able to like organize meetings for like just the hygiene workers or just the women workers. And that would have been very difficult to do just kind of on my own. But the reason that the space opened up inside the union was because we got this new officer he was this quite militant guy. He used to work in construction and generally had a more kind of radical outlook. And he really did want to do something. I mean, it was just totally ridiculous that this union had been um, recognised for the past 10 years and people were paying no, not an insignificant amount of money. I think it was like £13 a month and for people earning minimum wage. That's a lot just to be getting like 5p more than the minimum wage. I mean, it was really kind of disgusting. So the first thing he did actually when he when he was brought in was call for new elections. And there hadn't been any rep elections, I think, for about five years or something. I mean, it hadn't been done. So that up until that point, there hadn't really been any space to like become a union rep. So I think at that point where we thought, okay, how do we get in touch with more workers? this seemed like quite an opportunity that it would be silly to pass up just because, you know, ideologically unions are not revolutionary organisations. In a kind of pragmatic sense, it's like, well, how could we use their resources and how far are we able to push things within this structure? And it was also a way to kind of find out actually how does the union work? Because the general impression amongst the workers is, you know, you can't trust them. They they don't do anything. Um, And that was fairly obvious, but it's also kind of, would be interesting to know actually what was going on um, behind the scenes and what was causing those blocks and kind of antipathy on their part. When I became a union rep, well, I mean, actually, this was the first battle because initially before they realised what a nightmare I was going to be, they were quite keen to have me on board as a union rep because now I had energy and ideas. But they actually rigged the election the the rep election um, and were telling people who to vote for by simply handing out pieces of paper with the number that they should circle on the on the ballot form and I, I was on the list so then I you know it was like number two who got the most votes but obviously this came out that it wasn't a fair election and so I had to challenge it and call for a new election of course they were very kind of annoyed about this and they did exactly the same thing again they told who they told people who to vote for but this time I wasn't on their list but then I still kind of managed to get in on my own votes but it it immediately set the union the incumbent kind of reps against me because I'd kind of challenged them and kind of embarrassed them to other parts of the union and, and the workforce so from then on it was a very difficult relationship 
to kind of work with other union reps. So it was mainly kind of me and this officer who were trying to, you know, organise stuff with with workers. So I was able to, as I said, organise meetings with cleaners and get cleaners from different factories to actually come together in a room, discuss their situation and think about different ways of putting pressure on management that didn't necessarily mean that any of them had to become heroes or, you know, sticking their head above the parapet so then they would be victimised because, you know, they were kind of scared and it wasn't unlikely that that would happen. So, you know, it was kind of a discussion about what the problems were, but also yeah, where the kind of cracks were. So, for example, you know, do they use their mobile phones at work so their managers can reach them? Why are you using your phone? Like, what happened if what would happen if you all just stopped using your phones? You know, the manager won't be able to contact you. They would get pissed off. How do you kind of make your demands in this situation? So these kinds of things I was able to do. And then at some point, I guess, Workers have to carry that on. And I kind of felt I'm one person in a workforce of almost 4,000 people. The danger is to kind of feel very overwhelmed and thinking that it's your responsibility. If nothing happens, then it's somehow your fault. And my kind of approach to kind of remain sane was to think, well, you know, all I can do is open up these spaces workers to come and use as they want to then they have to somehow take the responsibility on themselves and to a varying degree that worked but in general ultimately when the pay campaign failed which we talk about in the book yeah they were they were not strong enough as a collective workforce to actually challenge union corruption to add a bit to that wage campaign i mean as we said normally they had percentage increases which increased the wage gap between mainly women unskilled workers than the medium layer which is uh, semi-skilled and so on and um, this time basically we pushed for one pound more for everyone which is like basically management didn't like it and the union didn't like it because normally they could let's say introduce these percentage increases by also, um, let's say, appeasing some of the middle strata and mainly the male workers. So to just say, like, we want one pound more, which would be a 12% increase for, for the women, for the lowest paid. And it's it's an egalitarian demand. It's for everyone. Uh, that was already something that had to be enforced. And all the other union reps were basically against that demand. Workers voted in favor of that demand, like, three times. I mean, the company came in with percentage offers uh, 2p more or 5p more in the end but um, workers said like no this you know the one pound is, is what we want the problem then is obviously how do you how do you enforce it and there I mean Kirin and you know with the help of the you know organized like family fun days in the park and so on and with a newsletter at that point which was still our newsletter independent from the union we said okay workers have to take charge of the union now because we knew that the the other reps wouldn't really support the campaign and workers have to tell the union okay this is what we want we want these gate meetings or we want these assemblies and uh, we told workers listen if the union and the union reps are not doing it then you have to do it yourself it's your wage campaign this opens the door to change something 
doing that uh, in one department, about 50, 60 workers took a wildcat action, basically on a bank holiday where they were supposed to work, they didn't appear at work, and uh, which shocked management and they had to bring in managers from Birmingham and other towns to run the production. The union officials had to distance themselves from that kind of wildcat action. Uh, in the newsletter, we said we support, you know, that's that's a step forward. The danger is just if we remain just in one department, then uh, we can be repressed. I mean, the boss can can uh, act against us. So um, our challenge is to, to expand this. I think... It shows the limits of if you go into a workplace and you think you can organize everything, it's it's often like rather big task. But what I think what we managed to do is to, you know, show workers, okay, the, the union is not something that you just have to accept is on the side of the bosses. You can shift that with your with your power. And by meeting, by discussing, you, you can take this over. In the 15 years in that factory, that never happened. So I think even with fairly small numbers, we were able to at least open a door for that kind of collective action. Yeah, so in the book, too, I know that there's more stories of different activities in different workplaces. There's even a moment in time where you all were connecting with the IWW on a specific campaign. I'd like to hear a little bit more about that, like some other efforts. And then also like talk about ways that you feel like your methods could have been improved like what lessons did you learn like the challenges the wage campaign itself sounds like there were some victories but also some things that could have been adjusted so maybe we can focus on the lessons learned as well i think initially we had the idea we have we are new in this area and uh, we have to get to know the the problems of workers at work and outside of work uh, we knew that so-called community structures are fairly strong and they're cross-class. So there's a big, more established South Asian, Punjabi and Gujarati community with uh, you know a lot of the middle managers, landlords, shop owners of that community. They've got quite a stronghold through you know religious organizations, and they're part of the you know local labor party that is governing that region. We thought, okay, in this situation where there are a lot of new migrants coming and they're, they're materially dependent on the middle class of that community, that is a recipe for overexploitation. I mean, a lot of uh, recently migrated Punjabi workers in construction or transport, they work for less than the minimum wage. So we thought that the, one of the first steps is to create a solidarity network where the basic premise is uh, workers support workers in, in any kind of uh, working class issue, uh, not as middlemen, not as experts, but you know through direct support and action, which is, seems fairly kind of a traditional kind of idea. But in this location where you've got these uh, various middle class communitarian organizations dominating and, and uh, creating the soil for extra uh, exploitation of recent migrants. I think it had a different function, such kind of solidarity network. We tried also to not just have it as case-by-case -case kind of issues, but uh, locate the solidarity network and the meetings close to the industrial areas, close to the airport or the logistics areas, 
so that um, there's a fair chance that through the cases we get to know more work, uh, workers at these, you know, in these workplaces. So we try to get a very close link between the solidarity network and situation at work. And it, it worked to a certain degree. I mean, we had, I would guess, amongst 10 cases where we helped individual workers, there would be one or two workers that would then either open the door to an interesting workplace or would also continue to help the solidarity network. So that's not many. And we can say 10% of, of all cases then you know, continue to, to support us. But we, yeah, we felt politically such kind of solidarity network to you know, drive some kind of wedge between the, the more marginalized workers and the middle class was like uh, important. We wrote a, like a newspaper, which was partly a reflection of uh, what we were doing in the solidarity network. Uh, so, you know, write about cases, um, a bit about our experiences at work. In total, I think 20 different uh, jobs like the collective. So we would reflect on these jobs, which is basic work. I mean, you say we, we have all similar kind of conditions and workers find some collective ways to, you know, even if it's a small way to resist. And uh, we, we reflect that uh, as a mirror um, in that newspaper. But we also put forward some basic political positions, uh, for example, about the question of Brexit or nationalism. Uh, so basically internationalist position, but trying to explain why we are internationalists. Also relating to the fact that a lot of people, even if they're migrants themselves, see new migration as a threat in terms of finding a, a room, the rents get higher and higher with overcrowding and so on. The, the wages are suppressed by newcomers. So we try to address these issues at the same time, say like, okay, as a class, the only way that we can react is by, you know, organizing with these people who just arrived. We also wrote a series, we called it system series, which was a reaction to the fact that in the last 10 years, workers are more and more forced to think about what is this global system? I mean, climate change, financial crisis, COVID. So we meet a lot of workers that if we compare it to the 90s, you know, no one would talk about the system or the, the global society or something. So now people start, but they start on individual like YouTube uh, journeys or like random internet searches and we come across a lot of conspiracy theories uh, a lot of quite uh, weird stuff but like people discuss so we thought okay we try to write our point of view and how this you know what the system is how it developed and how we might overcome it in an attempt to also go and go beyond like lefty jargon so we thought this newspaper has got various functions it's like yeah a means of information but it's also like an attempt to reintroduce some basic communist ideas in a very maybe pragmatic sense uh, revolutionary ideas uh, into you know the day-to-day struggle so yeah these are the let's say other aspects of what we tried lessons i pass over to kiran one criticism that we keep getting is you know that was a lot of blood, sweat and tears over six years and what do you have to show for it? And we can kind of say, well, what really would the alternative be? I mean, everyone was massively sucked into the labour Corbyn machine and then spat out again, feeling very depressed and demoralised, still picking themselves up off the floor. 
you know, people come up against the unions time and time again. A few people have illusions about what the unions can and, and are doing. But the general kind of feeling is that the relationship to the class is not there. You know, like there's very few rank and file structures that can bypass the union where you can actually get accurate assessment of like what's happening on the ground, how workers are feeling about it. And so on that level, it's like just making the decision to go somewhere and being like, yeah, okay, who is this working class that everyone loves to talk about so much? Who are we talking about? What are they doing? What power is there? How can we use it? Really going back down to basics in a way is something that we felt was was a worthwhile thing to do. We made loads of contacts in the area. We spread a lot of kind of seeds. We made friendships with many workers who kind of came to then support other workers in the area. I mean, we tried to kind of, you know, link things up. And I think on a grassroots level, that's needed. And it's, you know, it's a tough job um, and it might not always work. We still think it's it's worthwhile to do it. In terms of what we could have done differently, we could have chosen smaller workplaces, maybe. The idea that if you just get a small success somewhere and that could trigger off a dynamic or be something that people are inspired by in that area could create some kind of dynamic of its own. But at the same time, so many of the kind of IWW campaigns, for example, are focused on these very small workplaces and you might kind of win a union recognition or something or like win a paid amount. But I don't know, we didn't want to do that. The question is, how do those kind of training and organising models work in a bigger workplace? And these are the workers that somehow have a lot of strategic power and they're somehow forgotten about. So we were always kind of balancing this. But one thing that maybe we could have done in my food factory was knowing the limitations of the union and the kind of holds that the union had over the workforce I mean it was very kind of nepotistic for a start we could have maybe focused on a group of uh, drivers who were outsourced but still worked for that company and they didn't have a union so if we'd have maybe focused our attention just on them you know got them to have a kind of visible campaign and win something maybe that would have inspired workers in the in the factory to do something that could have been one thing should we have maybe had all of us working in that one workplace for a sustained period of time? I mean, we had people, we had comrades like come and go. So in my workplace, you know, there was about 1.4 of us working at the same time in different places. But people left because it was a tough, it was a tough job. But I think kind of if you're very few people and you want to focus your efforts, maybe it is better to just like all go into one place. And then you've got more of a chance of maybe doing something. I kind of think, should I have stayed inside the factory rather than going outside and becoming a forklift driver? Because the main problem was about the women on the assembly line and the fact that they were so kind of surveyed and monitored and bullied. And it was a constant battle to try and kind of get them to like band together to do something about it. They would always kind of have their individual problems but everyone was facing the same individual problems. And if I was able to do, I think, what we did as the forklift drivers together amongst some of the women on the assembly line, then that and they were the majority of the workforce, maybe that would have 
made a difference, you know, because I wasn't so kind of close to the women inside the factory, even though they were the majority. So those are some of the things that we've been thinking about. Obviously, also the question of like the, the goal. And uh, although we see it as part of our task to, you know, build some collective structures, at the same time, I would defend going for, for example, bigger workplaces um, just in terms of getting rooted and getting understanding and connections to to the local working class. I mean, the place where I worked was a warehouse with 1,400 people, many drivers as well. And uh, a lot of my workmates later on uh, shifted uh, to uh, truck driving at the airport, so I'm still in touch with them. Uh, others uh, moved into uh, manufacturing. So it's like a real, you, you get a, a sense of the area and you get a lot of political contacts that if there's, for example, a dispute, and there was now at the airport with British Airways, you get like, you know, first-hand uh, discussions with, with your former workmates there and you, you get like a, a better picture of what's happening. And this the question of a long-term strategy. I mean, you can create small victories and, you know, the, it's obviously something that it's quite needed as well. But if we look at the long term, um, we thought, okay, even if it's just three, four of us, how can we uh, get rooted in an area and build like a collective process with with other working class people? And I think, yeah, I think we managed to do that over the kind of uh, six years. I mean, some of our workmates, they came with us to international Amazon meetings to Poland uh, or took part in, you know, uh, in reading groups. I mean, these are small steps, but I think in the long run, what really remains is a political process. Maybe to make that a bit more concrete, I mean, what, what does long term mean? I think during the time of these, of the COVID crisis and the Corona crisis for a lot of workers, it became clear what is this essential sector? What is society really relying on? I mean, the work of 30, 40% of workers is actually social, socially necessary. And a lot of the other work is pretty either bullshit jobs or related to the money circulation. So we saw like a, a politicization process around, you know, the socially necessary work and why, why do we still all work like 10, 10, 12 hours again? Although, most of us do jobs that are not exactly necessary. So if we if we take that experience from the COVID time and also new self-confidence of workers in these sectors, care, nurses, food production, who all of a sudden felt in a spotlight, in a social spotlight, we yeah, we I think we can also ask the question of social transformation new. You know, with our co-workers and say like, okay, what does it mean? Why, why, why do we still, you know, work these ten-hour shifts? If if we would run the show, if we would, uh, you know, take over the means of production and have a say, uh, we would make sure that we all work. You know, no one works in bullshit jobs or in uh, is unemployed or whatever, uh, just uh, living parasitic life as a banker. If we all work, we all work three hours and could finally tackle the the big social questions like climate change and so on so i think in that sense if we see that you know especially on your side uh, you know in the us uh, with the you know threat of so called civil war the the question of you know how far can you go uh, with street protests and and riots so it's like we 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 are in a in a in a crunch moment where i think there's three elements 
of the working class that uh, stepped forward in the last you know six months and I think these three segments are somehow crucial if we think about you know how to actually transform or society take over means of production and I mean to just be quite schematic the three segments for us are the so-called tech or intellectual workers who came forward in form of you know Amazon uh, programmers or Google workers have got a political consciousness about their work and the impact you know surveillance or the question of climate change but they do it from an insulated point of view of their intellectual capacity they do it as you know philanthropic people who yeah, are aware that with their creativity they could do something else they, but there's very little links to let's say the the mass workers the so-called essential workers as an organization we would think we have to locate ourselves at these kind of in in between points between essential work something like what we did with the you know uh, food production transport care work what was traditionally called mass work and these um, workers who have got you know certain productive knowledge technicians engineers engineering and who are at the moment in a in a process of politicization so in this process i think we have to be able to put forward fairly pragmatic ideas about what it means to take over the means of production in a globalized world. And to do that, we have to get rooted. So I think that is somehow how we see a kind of longer term kind of uh, necessity of organization. We have to be in these places in their day-to-day struggles, but we also need the political kind of horizon of okay what is the limit of insurrection what is the, what are the means of production when a lot of them uh, depend on international supply chains so there's a tension between these kind of day-to-day things and and the bigger political debate but that's what we try somehow to do as a small collective being in that tension and just to kind of add quickly to the lessons question, I mean, the reason for also be went into so much detail in the book is that there is an open question about what could and should we have done differently. And we would invite people to to get in touch with us about what they think we should have done. I mean, all the kind of information is there. And yeah, I mean, we've been kind of criticised for being like just bad organisers. And OK, fine. But then what what could we have done in that situation? All the information is kind of laid out for you. We're kind of happy to have that discussion, but so far no one's really come forward with that. The conversation so far does, I've been having this question in the back of my mind around like, what does it take to spur collective action? I think you all were trying to figure this out too. And in the introduction, you mentioned that you believe revolution is like a series of tasks for the working class rather than like a mystical moment. I think the what you were posing just now about What's the long-term goals? What does it mean to take over the means of production? I think all of this actually is trying to answer that question that's been in the back of my mind. It's like, what, what would be necessary to win? So maybe in y'all's experience, what, what kind of conclusions or at least attempts at conclusions have you come to? Like, what do you think we're lacking? What do you think is necessary to win? To win on what on what level? That's I mean, there's so many different levels. You can say like, uh, what it, does it take to to win? Let's say a uh, uh, a rent strike in a in a certain area. I think that is quite different from the question like what, how can we imagine, uh, you know, a, a revolutionary transition in the 21st century? 
then the question is, uh, is there a link between both? I mean, is it just an accumulation of, uh, you know, individual struggles and experiences or are there leaps or are there certain certain kind of focal points or more important sectors that have to come into play? I don't know if it was clear what I meant with the three segments of, of, the, of the class. I mean, for us, like, apart from these kind of technical workers and the mass workers it's you know the marginalized workers that we've seen also like students uh, unemployed um, who have been on the streets you know from Chile to the US to you know Greece or Iraq and uh, I think at the moment there's no hegemonic force of the three segments that would be able to say okay this is the new social you know vision I mean that might have been the industrial uh, working class in the 1920s with you know forms of councils and things but that was at the moment where all the productive facilities from industry to agriculture was fairly close pro proximity and workers had you know a, a grasp of them both physically but also in terms of their their skilled knowledge now the 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 knowledge is sometimes located somewhere else you've got like you know tech workers or you know engineers that sit somewhere else in a different office somewhere you know a different region you've got like industrial and logistics centers like ours in west london and then you've got like areas that are more marginalized inner city poverty the unemployment and i think what is lacking is you know a strategy and say like how can these different class segments start to see their role in in a social transformation like all these segments make experience of their limitations i mean the the marginalized workers they bash their heads against the police against the army sometimes they see the power mainly located in government building or or the police uh, stations and i mean they're courageous and uh, you know are inspiring probably for the wider class but they meet their limitations the workers in the essential industries especially in countries like germany or also the uk the trade union state kind of connection really try to also like separate them to a certain degree from each other in sectorial terms company terms i mean in germany if you're a car worker with a permanent contract up to now you were okay you knew that the union and the state will make a deal that, you know, keeps you employed or like on short time, you know, work plus benefits, you will survive. So these struggles also, the, let's say the strikes that we've seen in, in the U.S. during the early days of the COVID crisis, the limitation is there often like, you know, uh, on, the, on the professional sectorial level. But yeah, again, the, the, the challenge would be in finding organizational tendencies that that overcome these same with the the so-called intellectual tech workers who are often like insulated in their idea that you know we can find a technological fix to social problems who often don't know that you know how their technical work impacts on uh, manual workers so i don't know the question how to win i think is to to find a collective debate about a pragmatic idea about of you know a revolutionary transition say like, okay the, the first step is not establishing some kind of paradise on earth the first step is you know to enforce that we yeah a three hours day you know, this is the level of productivity uh, a three hours day and social structures that allow us to debate 
social problems in our rank and file grassroots structure. And that's the first step. And that's fairly, you know, imaginable. So debate in that direction. But this debate has to be related to the actual struggles. I mean, actual struggles have to be analyzed of where do they break down these barriers between these three main segments. So that is not really happening. And I think also that's because there's a lack of maybe openness, transparency and honesty about people's experiences, either on the on the street or at work, the kind of brick walls that they come up against, what works, what didn't work, why. You know, like we tried to be very honest in the book about like everything that we did and tried to be quite self-critical. And this is very unusual, I think. I mean, even if you have a, a big strike with a trade union or something, you know, you, you never really know what's going on behind the scenes, like how things are, are developing on the ground, like amongst workers, um, between different groups of workers. I mean, it's very difficult to come by this information, but this is the stuff that we need because if we don't have a kind of honest assessment of what's going on, how do we ever build and get better? So I think building these kind of rank and file structures enables us to kind of have access to this information and then our kind of role as as groups or revolutionaries is put that out there for the common debate and that's kind of what we were hoping with the book that you know that kind of it would, it would add to that debate and contribute to it I mean the problem is like what can you get with a de-skilled increasingly de-skilled workforce finding a confidence you know because there's a kind of contradiction there between feeling like you've got some power over your workplace or you know what you're doing for like 10 hours a day and yeah being able to kind of utilize that but when if you know if you feel like you don't have that power where do you kind of get that confidence from so this is always the kind of tension um, and you're kind of looking for points where you can make that leap maybe to give an example i mean we were very inspired by um, warehouse workers struggles in italy um, mainly organized through sicobas which is a rank and file union um, and we went to, to Bologna and in Italy to discuss with workers and, and militants there. And we realized, okay, a lot of it is coming as self-confidence came through the fact that a lot of workers came from Northern African countries and uh, Arab Spring, so-called Arab Spring was happening. So they felt inspired that if, if their, let's say, friends at home can take on the police state of Mubarak, uh, they feel felt confident to to take on let's say logistics companies like TNT or you know so there was a quite peculiar international dimension that gave them confidence not just you know purely like you know a workplace based kind of uh, situation that it was it was a wider political situation that gave them the confidence that came together with a with a peculiar political scene like a more class focused political scene in, in Italy that we didn't have in London. But we also saw that they, given their successes, I mean, they grew very quickly as a union, a very rank and file union, no paid organizers, nothing, mainly, uh, let's say, carried by workers' militants. But they ran like full steam, always using blockades as, as a means of spreading the strike uh, and, or expanding the strike. But their own success also blinded them to the pitfalls or to the 
potential risks. So we ask them, okay, in what kind of situations do you win? In what kind of situations do you tend to lose? And they were just in the mode of saying, no, if there's solidarity, we always win. I mean, this kind of, you know, the, the idea that uh, workers don't have to also, you know, reflect on uh, defeats or on on certain situations that, you know, where even with stronger solidarity, you won't, you won't be able to win. So we found that's, that's part of the problem of, let's say, traditional syndicalist organizations that obviously they have to attract new people in order to become stronger and grow. But that doesn't allow them, uh, in most cases, to also really reflect openly on the, the weaknesses and the, the losses. That was at least an experience also with yeah, the most advanced, as we thought, advanced kind of struggles in, in Europe that, um, yeah, in the end, they tried to use a, a method that worked in a certain industry with the logistics. They tried to expand that to other sectors like meat industry, and it didn't work. And there was perhaps too little reflection on why it didn't work. Yeah, I definitely agree that it's frustrating to see a lot of the cheerleading that happens on the left. And, and I would say even more specifically within like mainstream unions, how they want to just proclaim these huge victories and maybe exaggerate the conditions of the victories and not like really tell you any of the substance or details, what they actually accomplished in a grounded sense. And it doesn't seem very helpful. So I do appreciate y'all's willingness to self-criticism, openness about these are, these are really questions that need to continue being ruminated on. I want to move us towards a conclusion here in that I'd like to hear... So this was like an effort over the past six years that the angry workers have participated in. I'd like to hear about what you all think is in your future. Like, where are you shifting your focus now? What do you hope to accomplish in the near term? And any other like, kind of final takeaways you want our listeners to have in terms of your own experiences doing the work that you've done? We wrote the book over six months while we were still working last year. And the aim of the book was basically to share our experiences, but to try and get in touch with other groups and discuss um, the possibility of some kind of exchange between our experiences if they wanted to, we were doing something similar. And that's kind of worked out quite well. So we've been in touch with other people who want to do something similar in their area. So we were quite aware that our situation in West London was quite specific. You know, there's no unemployment it's like very high migrant workforce but in the northeast of England it might be totally different you know so when our experience is not representative of like what's happening in the UK as a, as a whole and we need to have that kind of exchange and debate so the idea is to have kind of groups in different parts of the country having a kind of orientation around a workplace or several workplaces um, a solidarity network some kind of publication and then using that as the basis for some kind of political exchange and the development of a political organization. So we're in the process of doing that. And if anyone else is interested, then they could get in touch. And maybe to make this the question of why, why do we need a political debate? I mean, yeah, we thought we don't want to have a federation of uh, local groups who like just do similar things in terms of organizing. We thought we need a political debate. Maybe to give two examples, we had the idea that this kind of COVID experience of the lockdown gave manual workers in essential industries more confidence in the sense that, you know, they realized how 
important they are. Normally, they're invisible. Now they became visible. At the same time, the the crisis regime of the state, increasing of unemployment, put also pressure on them. So there's there's a, a wage kind of uh, pressure from below with more confidence, and there's a wage pressure from above. So we thought that there will be some. You know, in the next months, there will be, you know, tension, especially now with redundancies and things also increasing. Um, but to really understand uh, how you can relate to that, not just by coming up with nice demands or whatever, is to really understand the change in the balance of power at work on the shop floors. So we wanted to start an interview series with workers ranging from, let's say, truck drivers to call center workers, nurses, and so on. For that, you need, you know, we need a, a common debate. What are the main questions? We need the practical effort together to do the interviews, to de- debate it, and then also to work with it. Although the the idea would be if come out with a pamphlet saying, okay, these are experiences of workers in twenty different sectors or professions. These are commonalities. These are differences. How can we come out of this lockdown stronger? And uh, what what will be the main lines where the boss is going to attack us? So that is not really done. I mean, if we look at the UK, in US, you might have something like Labour Notes Conference where workers' militants can meet fairly independently. In the UK, you have either Labour Party-related things, which are completely focused on electoral politics. You've got very few rank-and-file union meetings, which are normally in the hand of Socialist Party. They all want to campaign for this, campaign for that. But there's no, let's say, space for workers' militants to reflect their experiences openly without you know, being instrumentalized, uh, and also very little political debate. So we thought with, let's say, 20, 30 comrades, we really were modest. I mean, we thought out of this book, if uh, 30 comrades in the UK feel close affinity, um, then we can work and then we could, you know, maybe open a little space for, you know, for these kind of debates. Second example, and, you know, I make it short, it would be for us an inquiry into the average worker in, let's say, the essential industry, how much knowledge do we have about, you know, how we produce what we produce? And that becomes a political question. So in a situation where we see more, you know, more redundancies, uh, closures of companies, the political question would be, what would it take to, to run your company? So you would start with very basic things. Workers might say, okay, we would lack parts or uh, raw material or whatever. It comes from somewhere else and we don't really know where it comes from. Or the question would be, how would the state react? I mean, uh, as soon as you don't pay your tax or do whatever, you know, uh, take over property that's officially not yours, how would the state react? And to understand, like, what you know in the 70s in the uk there was this kind of uh, idea of workers control self-management and it was very contained in professional groups or in certain industries how can you think about workers control on the level of you know a globalized economy how can you think politically about workers control if you know that you know these kind of things won't grow gradually you will come up against the state force or against you know all kind of other vested interests. So you can't just gradually grow yourself into a cooperative structure or something like that. And to have these debates with workers and their actual knowledge or not knowledge about their workplace, that would be an inquiry project that would 
require from us more understanding of you know what is modern division of labor between you know intellectual manual labor what what are the new technological developments but also very close relationships with workers in these industries so i think that would be something that requires political organization and we hope that the experience in west london and the reflections on it will will help us on that way so the invitation has been offered to our listeners to reach out, start these exchanges. How can listeners get in touch with the angry workers? We are on Twitter, at Workers Angry. We're on Facebook, Angry Workers World. And you can email us on angryworkersworld at gmail.com. Appreciate that so much. We'll include those links in our show notes. I really enjoyed our conversation with the angry workers. They just had a book published by PM Press called Class Power on Zero Hours. There's a lot of it available online as well, so folks can read some excerpts from it. And thanks so much for joining us today on Labor Wave. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Nice one.